Welcome to the Mission Forward podcast, where each week we bring you a thought-provoking and perspective-shifting conversation on the world around us. I'm Carrie Fox, your host and CEO of Mission Partners, a social impact communications firm and certified B Corporation. When Natalie Burke and I set out to create this season of the podcast, we wanted to dig into the many layered effects that COVID-19 had on our communities, from our connections to one another, our beliefs in people and systems, our understanding of power, and our trust in science and news. And it's that last item, trust, that we're going to look at this week. As you likely remember, the medical understanding of COVID was an ever-moving target, which made it hard for public health officials to figure out how best to share information about it, especially since messages were coming from a range of communicators, including elected officials, journalists, scientists, physicians, and community leaders, and all were being delivered to diverse audiences. So this week, we connect with two academic researchers from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Todd Newman and Emily Howell, who together with their colleague, Dominique Broussard, present their insights into the messengers and the messages that constellate to keep us unhealthy. This is a conversation about trust, and it brings with it some extraordinarily difficult questions. Does the public understand the role of public health? Has our model of health broken its promise of healthy communities across racial and economic boundaries? Has the media lived up to its obligation to truth in a public health crisis? And most importantly, how do we make it clear that public health truly matters to private lives? Stay tuned for this conversation, and I'll see you on the other side. Todd Newman and Emily Howell, thanks again so much for being with us. And I want to acknowledge that you had a third author or have a third author on your paper, your colleague, Dominique Broussard, who's not with us today. But I want to acknowledge that the three of you recently wrote a piece that I read in Fast Company that just stopped me and said, I need to reach out to the three of you and see if we could talk more about not just that article, but the bigger picture story behind what that what is in that article, because it is so relevant to the time that we're living in today. And for folks who are listening, you wrote an article focused on how the COVID-19 public health messages have been all over the place and that the public health field needs to do better. And so I'm going to ask you to maybe to, to get us started today why did you write this? What was on your mind specifically that pushed you forward to put this down on paper and to publish it? This article, uh, I mean, started from conversations as a as a department or department of life sciences communication. We think about you know science communication issues broadly, and when this when the pandemic happened, and and especially paying attention to the messaging that's been been going on, and in our uh, point of view, mixed messaging, uh, we felt the need to write something, and it. it just so happened that our uh, our co-author Dominique Brossard, uh, professor uh, at the Department of Life Sciences Communication at UW Madison, recently commissioned a report uh, for the National Academies of Sciences on promoting uh, behavior change uh, in regards to COVID nineteen. With that context, we really tried to sh- put together a framework for what we saw as a basically a lack of <laughs> a lack of social science and communication research specifically in a lot of 
the strategies going into messaging. And as we outline in the in the article, right, a lot of this has to do with the fact that there is, right, this all science issues cut across different sectors, whether it's politics, whether it's economy, right, the social justice issues, which we talk about. And that makes messaging really complex, very difficult. And so we laid forward a framework to think about what are some strategies that could be used um, by anyone doing communicating, be it at the federal level, at the state level, community leaders, right, talking to right, your, your friend or your partner. Um, and so that was the context that, that set that forward. Natalie, you and I have talked for a long time about public health's communications problem, right? And that their inability, I say there, but the public health field, the inability to communicate clearly keeps people unhealthy. And I think it might be good, actually, if you unpack that a little bit as we get into this episode today, let's talk about that so that our listeners are all on the same page as we dig more into this really important critical issue that you just mentioned, Todd, which is mixed messaging from public health. From my perspective, public health suffers from a type of toxic humility. <laughs> this whole thing that when public health is working, no one knows. And so there is a an inclination to under communicate about public health outside of times of crisis. And so we have really failed to prepare the public for times when we are in crisis. The fact that people fail to understand what public health is as a larger discipline, as a system, uh, the role that it plays in how we are interconnected as human beings around even how it connects to housing, education, transportation, employment, structural racism, issues of equity, means that at times when we need to activate the public, to engage the public, to support those efforts that would protect and support and promote the public's health, they're, they're ill-prepared. And so we're trying to do that in a time of crisis where people are having a very emotional response to being asked to change their lives, change their behaviors, and when they are feeling most vulnerable uh, in a number of different ways, in terms of their own health, as well as economically and in a host of other ways. So I am curious about what you think needs to happen outside of this crisis to lay the groundwork moving forward so that public health is not new to people and that people are connected to it in some way, shape, or form. And I'll say this before I turn it back over to you. In my mind, this idea that to engage in the production of the public's health is actually a patriotic act is crystal clear. I get it. I see it. I've worked in communities and we've actually talked about it, even though we may not say it in that way. What do you think is necessary for people to believe is true for them to engage in the production of health meaningfully outside of times of crisis and in times of crisis? What's the message? What's the narrative? And how do we deliver it? Yeah, I think that phrase toxic humility is so helpful. I want to um, keep sharing that if that's okay. Um, and I think this kind of ties into something we touched on in the article, which is there's just underreporting of benefits generally. And part of that is just, you know, the way the media systems work, we have this idea that bad news is what makes the news. And so even just in the way that news is portrayed, it's sort of always a crisis system. And then um, I was just hearing a listening to an interview recently, and I wish I could remember the person, but they were talking about how our healthcare system is generally, even outside of a pandemic, set up as a crisis system. And so we really, you know, we're not 
building in the structures that we need to be healthy and public health is such an important piece of that. Um, and so I, I think it would be really great to be able to see that we highlight, you know, what are the successes that we've seen from public health? Um, and it is difficult because a lot of it is these longer term trends, but those are still stories we can tell. Um, and that comes both from the health officials themselves of really, you know, I know it's not their job, their official job to communicate, but really it, it is in a lot of ways if they want to be effective in their work. And then also on the journalism side of really highlighting what were these success stories, um, what things, what did we avoid or what successes have we had because we invested in public health in these different areas. And this idea of, of seeing that as something patriotic, I think is something else that we tend to um, not do maybe as much as we should in communication, which is showing the overlap between health and these other areas. So I think early on, we saw that a lot of the debate um, of how to respond to the pandemic fell into, oh, health versus the economy. And really health is the economy. Like if people aren't feeling well, they can't go to work. Um, there's tremendous economic loss and costs from always being in this crisis mode. Um, and so I, I would like to see more conversations where we acknowledge that these things have a lot of overlap and really depend on each other. The communication ecosystem that we live in, that we're embedded within, right, is something that, you know, needs to be nurtured, needs to be needs to be cultivated. And I think, you know, with that and, and, and going on, but you brought up, Natalie, with this idea of kind of cultivating this, you know, continued um, engagement with and understanding of public health and how it integrates into so much of our life is 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 really thinking about right consistent messages coming about this from trusted communicators that are connected to the communities involved right so much of effective communication is about context it's about right you can't just give people information and they'll just take that information as you have to place context around that about where their values are what matter why it matters for them why it matters for the larger society and i think that is really where right when you when you think of a lot of the the you know success stories of you know public communication campaigns it's about having trusted messengers communicating the consistent message through trusted channels. There was some research that came out not too long ago from the Frameworks Institute about communicating about public health. I am certain that you all saw it. But that in that research, they talked about how public health leaders lack the relationships needed to engender familiarity and trust from leaders of key sectors. And so they get into a situation and the trust isn't there. And so the content is being pushed out. But to your point, Todd, the context, nor are the relationships there to be able to receive and understand that information. And I'd love to, to get your take on that, how you've, you've heard that uh, about that research and uh, how you understand that issue to be playing out. Trust is a, is a complicated construct. You know, there's many dimensions to it. I mean, you can trust someone, you know, regardless of the information that's coming from them. And if you have trust in them, right, it, we often say it's not, it's not the message, it's the messenger. And I think when you think about trust, and when you think about how that is built up in a society, especially when it comes to public health, I, I think, again, it goes to this point, it's people that, that look like me, that share the same values as me, that see the world as I see it. I mean, when you think about the divisions that have come where, right, you say like, oh, we trust, we trust science, we trust scientists, well, we trust the science and the scientists that aligns with what we believe. And oftentimes, right, that is part of the issue. And I think it really gets down to thinking about ways to, A, better understand these trust dynamics, figuring out infrastructure which can support this at the community level at the, I mean again it goes to this idea that 
right? Communication is something that needs to be nurtured, that needs to be sustained. It, it, it is a system in and of itself. How that plays, plays out over time is about how situations like this, right, are managed and other crises that come up. And to uh, Natalie's point, right, the idea that, well, it shouldn't be when these crises come up that, you know, these, these, you see these spikes in, in, in um, differences. So, I mean, I think those are some of the, the key takeaways that, that come to mind when I think about kind of trust in this context. I'm wondering, one of the things that stands out for me has been the public's response and frustration to how messaging related to the virus has changed over time. And it's funny because I feel as though the concept of it being a novel virus got dropped like four weeks into this. And with that, we lost an opportunity in the communication to say we are learning on an ongoing basis, right? So I think that that was a critical piece that got lost along the way. And in fact, the idea that you're learning and can be trusted at the same time, those two things can actually happen. But I don't feel as though um, the scientists and the other folks who have been coming out to communicate about that recognize that those two things can hold space at the same time. And those things are very much connected to the need to foster a collective consciousness. So the fact that we were going through such a politically divisive time, I think made that harder. And I want to make sure that I acknowledge that the polarization through media and media sources and how people really are sort of ensconced in their echo chambers and, and stuck in the algorithms of their social media absolutely factored into this. But what do you think could have been done differently in messaging and communicating about this idea that I'm asking you to engage in behavior, to trust me because this thing is novel and we're going through it together? What could have been done differently to, to help communicate that? The idea of consistency is also just sort of repeating the same messages because as you say, Natalie, um, I noticed that as well, that some of the messages that we were getting early on that were super helpful for giving this context into, you know, why things were so uncertain or even why a lockdown um, was necessary. That's already, you know, the flatten the curve. Um, you can think back a year. Um, but then that sort of disappeared. And I think that was a loss because the pandemic only became more relevant to people. And so that information would only become more sticky. And we all sort of got it at the stage where for most of us, it was still pretty abstract. And so it didn't really connect in a meaningful way. And then, you know, it's all conjecture, but then how that played out as we started having arguments about the value of masks, about lockdowns, you know, we sort of lost that basic core of sort of why are we doing this, I think, and, and some of the messaging around that. Um, so some of it is just, it's just that I know that in the news cycle, you want to keep going with new novel information. Um, but some of that repeat messaging, I think, would have been really helpful throughout the whole year, really, as, as it becomes relevant to different people at different times. And I want to take that same question, but flip it and think, can either of you think of any examples of what was working or what worked through the pandemic when, Todd, you mentioned earlier, it's not always the message, it's the messenger who were the messengers that really did help to communicate effectively through this process? I mean, I think one of the examples that comes to mind, and you know, when you think about vaccine hesitancy, for example, historically, right, you would African Americans had more hesitancy uh, for vaccines for you know uh, 
reasons uh, historically that, that that came up with Tuskegee, et cetera. But over time, right, we saw that the African American community actually became one of the most highly um, adoptive of vaccines, partially because there were trusted communicators of medical practitioners within the field coming out and communicating and engaging, right? And then you saw conservatives primarily as the group that became the most dismissive, most unlikely to get vaccines, unlikely to follow, right? Again, because, right, there's a lot of mixed messaging. There's not a consistent messenger. And I think when you look back to historically to, you know, campaigns that you think of seatbelt laws, you think of smoking, you think of, you know, any of these other public health campaigns, what mattered for that was having, you know, leaders to come out that, right, were from the, whether the ideological party, the political party that they they agreed with, um, right, that came from the same community, et cetera, and were able to, to push that message and have that engagement uh, with their community. So I think that's that's part of it. And and the other thing too is is, you know, with the media system, right, and and the way in which this this COVID is covered, so much of the messaging that we get, and Emily touched upon this, right, has been framed in the negative. It's been it's been the scare, it's been the awe, right? It grabs attention. That's how the system is built. But right, we know that focusing on the benefits. Right, focusing on the the small business or the small salon, right, that's able to reopen because they followed protocols better rather than right the the crowded beaches in 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 Florida or something like that, right, where people think that you know this is getting out of hand. When in reality, right, it's not necessarily the case. So these mixed messages from the media, I think, I think play a problem in that. And and in addition to that, and I think this this goes off of what Natalie you were talking about earlier about just covering this issue regardless is. You know, we talk about this in the article about science being a moving target. It's very difficult to cover science in general. There are great science journalists out there. There are a lot of really bad uh, attempts at, at covering this because it is difficult, right? It, it, science is, is, is science. It's an evolving process. It's not settled. It, it continues to evolve. And the public, especially those that don't have a background, right, in science and, you know, for the majority, right, that's just not. Uh, top of mind for them, right? The, the process of science and understanding uncertainty and understanding parameters, right, is something that is really complicated to communicate, and it's something really complicated for the vast public, right, to to wrap their heads around about what does this mean for me? And I think that, coupled with right, the fragmented media system, makes this very complex. Well, I think that speaks to the reality that public health is about relationships relationships between and among systems, institutions, communities, individuals, resources. It's about how we are all interconnected, which create, there's an inherent tension between that and American individualism. And it's part of why I think the American public has struggled to understand that your health is a production of society that is above and beyond personal responsibility and choice, access to healthcare and health insurance, right? That your health is about so much more than that. And I think this idea about trusted messenger um, is is absolutely a critical component of this. And I can tell you, I was frustrated with the narrative about the mistrust based on Tuskegee coming out of the African-American community because I knew what I was hearing was quite different than that. The fact that people were not having access to vaccinations 
played a critical role. The fact that we had places like in Michigan where they chose not to collect data in terms of racial data on who was being vaccinated means then we didn't have an idea of who was and who wasn't being vaccinated and where resources actually needed to be put. So this narrative was then being crafted, well, Black people are not getting vaccinated because they don't want to get vaccinated, and dismissed these other factors that were important. So I think, you know, it's interesting. I went to the grocery store and everywhere I go, I ask people, so getting vaccinated? Did you get vaccinated yet? You didn't. Want to talk about it? Want a resource? I, I'm constantly doing that. And for me, I can tell you the tool in my toolkit, the arrow in my quiver was Dr. Kismikia Corbett. And I could pull my phone out and show a picture and say, here is someone who helped to develop the vaccine. And yep. She's a, she's a black woman. She's a young black woman. She's vaccinated and she's getting her family vaccinated too. So what are you going to do? I cannot tell you how many people said, oh, all right, they're going to be here on Wednesday. I'm going to get vaccinated. And that was it. I didn't, like, I didn't require anything else. So I'm wondering, is it that we need to position the experts, the scientists to deliver the messages? Or is it that we need to equip messengers who function outside of the science to deliver the messages? Are we asking scientists to do too much with this? Yeah, yeah, I think that is definitely a bigger conversation going on in communication fields too, is we're so long like, oh, scientists need to communicate better, but that's not what they're trained to do. And some scientists, you know, they're really good at science because that's just what they do and what they focus on and and they don't have want to think about or have time to think about how to fit it in um, to these other contexts or communicate it to people. Um, so I, th I think definitely having more people who are able to, you know, sort of cross these different disciplines, these different communities and communicate across. And then also um, hearing your examples, Natalie, it also reminds me that so often in communication research, we're focusing on these big media systems and structures and algorithms and things, but really interpersonal communication is so huge and so much more impactful and we just don't have good ways to study it, um, but we know that it matters. And so really to have good communication, you need good human you know, connections really in that sense. And that's also where you need more people represented in these expert communities, in these journalism communities. So um, for example, I'm in Montana. And so most of the um, difficulty in vaccination and masks is coming from more rural areas, which also are underserved. And so they just don't have people who can represent them in these public health communities or, you know, in these media systems. And so a lot of it is also just that making sure that um, we get better representation in the fields themselves. Not all scientists should be communicators. Not all scientists, because they have, you know, a PhD should be talking about COVID. If, you know, they don't, <laughs> if they're not, a, you know, studying public health or they're studying, um, you know, the disease clearly. But you know, to the point that the interpersonal side of this, and I think, you know, this is something that science is recognizing. And I think, you know, the, the different ways in which science is represented is, 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 is making steps to get better at is, is how, who, who are the, who are these experts? And part of that is giving them platforms and pedestals and opportunities to, to be in positions of, of communicating um, and also, you know, from as a science communication researcher, thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion in part of the research process. And I think that's 
you know, something that is becoming more and more part of the discipline, you know, we call it the science of science communication is, is putting these, these, these questions into, right, the design of the research and having it be community centered because we can't think of the public, right? There is no public, there's publics. And I think a lot of these factors combined, you know, present opportunities and also challenges that require systemic changes in science. And I think there are, you know, efforts at this, but um, clearly uh, need to be more uh, going on. But I think it's a it's a really powerful point about right who should be who should be communicating and when. And I think that needs to be needs to be addressed. Yeah, that resonates a lot with me. We talk a lot about those who are in positions of power, what they look like, what their experiences were, their upbringings, and how that informs their viewpoints and what biases they bring to that work. And I had mentioned to you before this conversation that I have been in several conversations the last many, many months with various clients um, who were talking about the sources of their information. And when I dug and challenged on where their sources were, it was often a singular white man who was the source of the information. Not to say the source is, is wrong, but how are we diversifying those sources? How are we digging in to, to really understand that information to challenge and reduce the bias that we all bring to our work, right? Not just science communications, but to all of our work. And so as we're, as we're wrapping down here, I've got two more questions I want to ask you. And one actually gets to that point of design. You know, if we are thinking about science communication, being able to be designed for the margins, let's say, right? For communities that are often forgotten about in communication, that are often undervalued in how they are brought into the conversation to begin with, right? We can't go back. What happened has happened with COVID. How do we go forward? How do we think about adjusting or changing or altering science communication moving forward so we can more thoughtfully design for all communities? One item that comes to my mind when, you know, when I hear a lot of the great work that's being done in, in health communication specifically is, is, is designing research at the start with community partners. And, you know, we've started doing that in our research and having you know, the community partners, whether it's a local nonprofit, uh, other organizations like that, to A, have some buy-in because, right, a bunch of researchers coming into a community, oh, we want to, you know, collect data on you, right, that doesn't get very far. And it's about, right, having these, you know, frank conversations about, you know, how, how can this research Im Im impact you and impact your day-to-day -day life and how can this be manageable? And I think, you know, you see that in a lot of, you know, funding that's going on now in terms of right communication is having this connection between research and practitioner. So I think you know that's a that's a major step in terms of thinking about ways to 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 bring this into the the design process moving forward. Yeah, and that's building on Todd's point that idea that you really have to center that into your design from the beginning. It can't just be sort of an afterthought. Like oh, and by the way, we'll also reach out you know to these particular publics. Um, and I think there's more and more recognition going on that when you're designing for the margins, <laughs> everything gets better because if you're, if you're able to reach the people who are least reached, it means that you've, you know, sort of created these more equitable structures that everyone ends up benefiting from, even though that wasn't, you know, sort of the center goal. Um, and so I think that is becoming, I mean, the pandemic made that so clear. Um, and we also saw that the, researchers who already had deep connections and collaborations with communities were able to just react instantly and start to address community needs 
Um, and so now more and more people are, are looking to those examples and saying, oh, how did you do that? How do you build this? Um, and trying to really do that in a more rigorous and intentional way um, so that we are designing um, for the margins, but also seeing the margins is so key to everything. You know, it's interesting because I think effective communications requires us to take equitable approaches as opposed to taking equal approaches, right? Like that difference between equity and equality becomes really very, very important in, in this topic in particular. And when I think about how many people reached out to me and said, I need to communicate to my family about this, what should I do? And even more recently, as teenagers started to get vaccinated, I had a lot of people who were reaching out and asking questions and so on. Um, and so I shared, there were a couple of articles that I thought did a really nice job explaining why and really helping to dispel what I think were some of the myths that were starting to float around. If you had the opportunity to talk to someone, because as much as this is about communication that happens at that 50,000 foot level, it's also about the communication that takes place via text and on a phone call and at a dining table, um, you know, at, at the end of the driveway when I see my neighbor when I'm putting out the trash. In those moments, if we're talking about something, and I'm going to use vaccination as the example, can you, in a very simple way, say what the approach someone should take to try to win hearts and minds um, and to activate people and engage people so that they can move forward in a way that is going to support public health. One of the things that comes to mind, and this is, you know, a big part of, you know, the work that, that you know, was done at the uh, Alan Alda Center and, and the role of empathy. And, you know, Alan Alda has a saying that, you know, when you're communicating to someone, it's, it's, not your, not just the willingness to change them, but the willingness for you to be changed as well. And I think, you know, there's a humility in that in terms of going into conversations thinking that you have to change someone. But if you go into that conversation, right, with the with the mindset of understanding what it is beneath the hesitancy, beneath whatever might be counteracting, you know, what you think should be best for them, and understanding that, that goes a long way. And I think that's right. A key part of effective communication is is the willingness to change yourself in a in a in a communication context, not just the other person. Alan Alda has this fantastic book called "If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face?" and I use it in nearly every media and message training that I do. And um, that rings really true to me. That so much of this is thinking through the lens of empathy, how we're applying truly the principles of design thinking to challenge, you know, the, the traditional norms of communication. And so as, as Natalie said at the top, you know, the work that you both are doing and your colleagues are doing is so critical. This is such a big, complex problem to determine how do we communicate, translate, trickle down, trickle up, you know, messages that in the end are designed to make us all healthier. So as we wrap up today, Emily, Todd, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for your, your time and your work. And uh, we look forward to, to uh, staying in touch. Yep. Thanks for the work you do. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Mission Forward. The Mission Forward podcast is produced with the support of Nimra Haroon and the Mission Partners team. Engineering by Pete Wright. Music this week is Living by Vortex. Thanks for your support, and we'll see you next time.